Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is John, the first chapter, where my Bible is opened up. And I'll invite you to get a Bible out and be finding John, chapter 1, as well. This part of our worship is devoted entirely to the proclamation of the Word of God. And so, really, what better way to get focused on and locked in to the things that God has to say than by having a Bible out and opening it up and following along with the passages that we'll be reading and discussing for these next few minutes. As you're turning to John chapter 1, I'll join in the welcome from earlier. It's great to see everybody today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you especially to those of you who are visiting with us. Obviously, you knew that we were going to have lots of our own folks away, and so you decided to come and help fill in those empty spots, and we appreciate you being here. But whatever it is that's brought you our way, we're thankful for your your presence. You encourage us, and we hope and trust that the things that we're doing today, that as we worship God and as we edify one another, hope that's helping you to draw closer to the Lord. And if we have been successful in that, then we thank God that we've been able to serve in that capacity. This morning, I bring to a close 12 months and 16 sermons worth of preaching on what has been, at least for me, just the most rewarding preaching theme of the last five years. And I think judging by the response that many of you have given to several of the sermons throughout this year, it seems that many of you might share in that sentiment as well, that there has been nothing quite like just the simplicity of opening up the Gospels, looking in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just spending some time with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have had the opportunity to be with Jesus in a number of different directions this year. From sitting at a dinner table with Jesus, to being on a mountain with Jesus, to visiting various houses of folks with Jesus, to going to the temple with Jesus. We've got to learn a lot about family with Jesus. We've come to know the character of Jesus in a deeper and better way about how He is our great high priest how He is our Good Shepherd. We've got to know Him as the suffering servant and as the light of the world and so much more. And all along the way, I hope that not only have we come to know the Lord better, but even more so, I hope that we have been challenged and that we have been changed by being in His presence. This morning I want to try and bring all of those ideas to a conclusion in what I hope will be a very fitting fashion. And I want to start that from John the first chapter Read with me, if you will, please, in verse 18. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, John writes there, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Have you ever known someone who knew a famous person? If you have a friend or a co-worker and come to find out that they know somebody who's really, really famous, maybe you're talking with a friend about some famous actor or some famous athlete or some famous musician, and your friend says, oh yeah, that's like my second cousin. Yeah, see him at family reunions all the time. And you say, get out of town. Are you serious about that? And they say, yeah, he, I'm related to him. Maybe they even pull out their phone, start showing you pictures. They've got pictures with that famous individual. And after you get done picking your jaw up off the floor, what's the next thing that we say? We say, well, well, what's he like? I've always wondered, what exactly is he like in real life? Several years ago, I introduced Tiffany to the brother of one of the Backstreet Boys. That's right. 
The brother of one of the Backstreet Boys is a member of the Lord's church. And when I told Tiffany, hey, this is his brother, she nearly fainted right there on the spot. But once she finally kind of got her composure and got herself together, she then immediately started asking those questions. Well, well, what's he like? You're his brother. What's he like? You know, I've seen him in the videos. I've heard him on the radio. But I mean, what's he like in person? You know, what was he like whenever you all were growing up together? And what's he like today now that he's got all that fame and all that fortune? Just tell me, what's he really like? Tell me this. What's God like? You know, I guess it would be pretty cool to get to know a backstreet boy and know some stuff about a backstreet boy, but you know what? It'd be a whole lot more cool to know about the creator of the universe. What's God like? What are his likes and his dislikes? You know, what does God talk about and think about all day long? What is important to him? What exactly does God do on a daily basis? If you could just go and hang out with God for the afternoon, what would you see him doing? Now, obviously, you can't just go and hang out with God for the afternoon. Nobody's going to just stroll up to heaven and say, Hey, God, what's up? Just thought I'd drop by and hang out for the day and kind of get to know you a little bit better and see how you do things. No, you, you can't do that with God. can't do that with a famous athlete or a famous actor. Just show up at their house and say, hey, you're to hang out for the day and to get to know you better. can't do that with them. can't do that with God either. So the question is, how are we ever going to get to know the Lord? Well, we're probably going to need to know somebody who knows Him. Going to need to know somebody who knows him really, really well, like, say, a relative. But of course, not just any relative is going to do. How about, how about we ask his son? In fact, that's what John 1 verse 18 just got done saying. John 1 18 says that Jesus came to this earth to make him known. That word known there means to tell all about. To provide careful explanation and detailed information. Jesus came into this world, this physical realm, in order to tell us everything that we need to know about God. In fact, I need to couple this passage in John with a passage in Colossians. Would you find Colossians 1, please? In Colossians 1, because not only does Jesus tell us about God, But Paul says here in Colossians 1 that Jesus takes that a step further. In Colossians chapter 1, I'm reading here in verse 15. In Colossians 1 and in verse 15, he speaks of Jesus here when he says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus didn't just come to tell us about God. He came to show us about God. And that's because He is the visible image of the invisible God. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born into this world in order to be the fullest explanation, the fullest demonstration of what God is all about. And while it is certainly true that the Old Testament certainly revealed much about God, And it is also true that nature, you could go outside and observe creation, and yes, that'll teach you some things about God. But it is also true that the ultimate, the complete, 
The final word about God, it can be found in one place, actually one person and one person only, and that is Jesus the Christ. No one can show us a more detailed or a more accurate picture of the character and the qualities of our God than Jesus can. And that is why this morning, for the final time this year, I want us to spend just a few moments with Jesus. And I want to do that specifically today in order for us to come to learn and come to know what God is like. And the truth is, throughout this year and throughout this series, we've actually already done that. We've not specifically come out and said it that way, but that really is what we've done. For example, when we spent one of those Sundays thinking about Jesus the miracle worker and we just worked through Mark chapter 5 and all the amazing miracles that Jesus performed, what were we seeing there? What we were seeing was the power of God. Jesus was showing it to us. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to come along and just say, hey, God is powerful. But it's a whole other thing for Jesus to demonstrate that power in His own life. And so in that spirit and in that vein, I want to let Jesus this morning just highlight for us just two. We've got two points this morning. Two things, two simple yet foundational and fundamental truths about God. These are the kinds of truths that if you and I or anyone is ever going to be in a relationship with God, then we're going to have to come to Jesus and we're going to have to ask Him, Hey, what's He like? And what Jesus is going to say is He's going to say, let me show you two things. And the first of those two things that Jesus is going to show us about the Father is that God, He loves us. Because Jesus is the express image of God's love. Look in John the third chapter, please. In John chapter 3, this message is encapsulated really just so perfectly right here in a very famous verse. It's verse 16. In John chapter 3 and in verse 16, there the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. There it is. Jesus came as the definitive emblem of God's great love. And somehow, in some way, I'm afraid that we... We kind of miss that a little bit. We've read that verse so many times. We've heard it quoted so many times. It just kind of rolls off of our lips and out into the atmosphere. And it seems like it's kind of lost a lot of its punch. We don't give it a whole lot of consideration. Yeah, God so loved the world. That's right. Okay, moving on. Well, hold up. Let's pump the brakes. Stop for a moment. What if God didn't love you? You thought about that? What if God was cold and mean? and indifferent, and unfeeling. You know, the gods of other world religions, that's how many of them are. What if our God, the true and living God, what if that's the way that He was? You know, there's no cosmic law that says that God has to love us. God loves us because He chooses to do that by His choice. In fact, that's the only way that love ever works. We choose to love someone else. And that's what God does. He chooses to love us. He wants to love us. And Jesus came to this earth to spread that message. He came to spread it in every way and in every outlet He possibly could. That God loves you. Jesus is always telling people that. Would you find Matthew chapter 5? Let's just notice one of those places. In Matthew chapter 5, this is a good example. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, 
that God loves us so much, Matthew 5.45, that He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's just doing good things for people all of the time. Even for people who aren't doing good things for Him. God showers His love on every person. Furthermore, I want you to know, Jesus didn't come and just talk and preach about God's love. Jesus actually did some stuff. Look in John 6, please. In John chapter 6, Jesus is describing His mission here. In John chapter 6, this is verse 38. In describing that mission, Jesus says in John 6 verse 38, He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus says that He came to do the will of the Father. Well, what was the will of the Father? Go around kicking people? Being mean to people? Play tricks on people? You ever thought about Jesus? He could have just snookered and hoodwinked anybody He wanted to. And yet He never did that. Or what about going around and exploiting people? Jesus could have did that too. Hey you! Pick this bag up and carry it for me. Hey you, go get me a cup of water. Hey you, come over here and help me with this. Jesus could have did that. Never did that. That was not the will of the Father. Instead, Jesus came here and in His actions, He did things that showed and demonstrated clearly that God loves you. Like, for example, reach out and touch a leper. And bring healing to His body, Mark chapter 1. Or help dry a widow's tear by raising her only son from the dead, Luke chapter 7. Or enter into the house of one of the most hated people on the planet, the house of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and offer him salvation, Luke chapter 19. Over and over and over again, Jesus did things that demonstrated God's goodness, God's kindness, and God's love for man. In fact, would you look over, step out of the Gospels for a second, look in Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, here is really the divine summary. As Peter is preaching in Cornelius' house, here's how he sums all of that up about Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, this is verse number 38. In Acts 10 and in verse 38... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. You know, whenever we talk about some of those miracles and those wonders and those signs that Jesus performed, we usually make the point that when we talk about signs, signs point to something. And while there's always lots of discussion and lots of debate, especially in the religious world at large, about what that's pointing to, let's not overlook the most obvious thing. Jesus' good works that He did, they point to what? They point to the fact that God loves you. They point to the fact that God is good. You know, why was Jesus so kind and so loving and so caring to people? It's because God is so kind and so loving and so caring. Jesus put on skin so that He could then live out the very love of God in His life. Which brings me to Mark the 15th chapter. Would you find Mark 15, please? Because in Mark 15, something happens here that really is quite amazing. It's astonishing. In some ways, it's almost almost hard to even believe that this happens. In Mark 15, I'm reading here beginning in verse 21. 
Mark 15, verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. They crucified him. And they divided his garments among them. How is that possible? How could that happen? How can the very embodiment of good and light and righteousness and truth, how could He be given over into the hands of lawless men and be crucified for sins that He did not commit? I'll tell you why. Because God loves you. Because God loves me. Jesus suffered horribly. Jesus died in excruciating fashion because God loves us that much. He gave His only Son, John 3.16. It really almost boggles the mind, doesn't it? There's that song that we sing from time to time. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? You know, in light of that fundamental truth, can I just ask right now, why would we ever doubt? Or why would we ever question the love of God? You know, for example, when things maybe don't go a person's way, don't go exactly how we want, maybe we're kind of unhappy with the outcome of certain events in our lives, why is it that sometimes people say, well, you know what, prayer just obviously doesn't work. God clearly doesn't care about me. He allowed this to happen. Or sometimes maybe when a Christian maybe commits some, some awful sin, Or maybe the devil just kind of creeps into their conscience and reminds them of the guilt of past sins. Why is it that sometimes Christians will say, God's just not going to forgive me. God could never love somebody who's done such awful things as I have done. Can I ask you this? If you were drowning out in the middle of the ocean or something, you were drowning, and there was a man standing on the shore, and he sees you out there, and he sees you struggling, and he sees, hey, I think that person's drowning. And so what this man then does, he then sends his son out into the water. Go out there and save that person. Go out there and save them. And so the son, he swims out, gets out to where you are. And in the process of trying to save you, somehow in some way, imagine that that son, he drowns and he loses his life. Can I ask you, as you then go throughout the rest of your life, what could ever happen? that would cause you to say to that father, you know what, buddy? I don't really know if you really care about me. I'm not really sure that you love me. No. A thousand times no. That issue is settled once for all time, isn't it? And in much the same way, so it is with God's demonstration of His love. Jesus came into this world And people in the world at that time, they had a lot of different images of God in their mind. Jesus arrived into a world where people had stone and metal images and they said, that's God. He lived in a world where people had designed these very intricate mythologies of gods and goddesses and they said, oh, now that's what God is like. Jesus came along at that time to set the record straight. And in the same way, even today, People have all kinds of images in their mind about who and what God is all about. Many people think of God as just the, He's just the cosmic killjoy. 
He's just against ever having fun or enjoying yourself or enjoying the things of this life. God just wants to put a stop to all that. Or God's just the big divine bully. And all He's interested in is smiting people and punishing people at every turn. People have all kinds of false ideas about God, but Jesus has come to set the record straight. And the beginning of that was Jesus is to showcase God's tremendous love. You spend some time with Jesus, pretty quickly, you're going to see just how much God loves you. Which leads directly into this second fundamental truth. And that is that Jesus wants to show us that we can trust God. Because Jesus is the constant reflection and representation of God's trustworthiness. Would you find Matthew chapter 26? I want us to think for a second here about... Something that Jesus says in Matthew 26. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. And as He is arrested, given over into the hands of these soldiers, uh, there's all this chaos that kind of breaks out in that moment. Peter, of course, pulls out a sword and he whacks a guy's ear off. And a big old just skirmish breaks out there. But then Jesus wants to calm everybody down. Verse 52, He says, boys, put your swords away. We're not doing that here. And he says in verse 53, he says, Do you think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Man, now that, that's a big statement. All of us maybe can remember growing up, maybe you're getting into a tussle with somebody at school, or maybe somebody at school, they start picking on you and they're pushing you around, and maybe they're calling you a wimp, and you know what, your whole family's a wimp. And before you know it, you end up saying, oh yeah, well my dad, he can beat up your dad. You ever say that before? My daddy will whoop your daddy. I can assure you, me and the other McKibben boys, we never said that about our dad. (laughs) Instead, we said, my dad will come and lecture your dad. You get my dad started, he'll preach at you for an hour. He might even PowerPoint to you. But we say that kind of thing because we just have confidence in our Father, don't we? That our Father, He's there. He's there to protect and to provide. He's going to take care of us. And yet even as we run that out there, my dad will beat up your dad. Even as we say that, I think we're still even a little bit hesitant, a little bit nervous to say that. Because number one, we don't know what the other dad looks like. He might be six foot seven, three hundred pounds, chiseled out of granite. And in fact, we're not even quite certain of the physical capacity of our own father. Not even sure if he can take him. And furthermore, it may just be that even if we do come back and ask dad to beat that other guy up, dad may say, oh, well, we're just going to talk it out. We're not going to resort to violence. We're going to just talk this thing out and do it peacefully. And so we just don't know always about our own physical earthly fathers. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, I know. I have absolute confidence in my Father. I trust my Father. Jesus is 100% sure and certain of what God would do in the snap of a finger. If Jesus merely spoke the word, 12 legions of angels would come pouring forth. In fact, if you'll find John chapter 11, we just see this kind of confidence oozing from Jesus' language all of the time. In John chapter 11, Jesus is standing here at the tomb of Lazarus. 
And He is about to place a very big order. He is about to call a man forth from the grave. He's about to raise a guy from the dead. Listen to His voice in John 11 verse 41. John 11 verse 41, so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up His eyes and He said, Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. I knew, I knew that You were always hear Me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that You sent Me. Jesus says, I trust my Heavenly Father. I trust that He has heard and He's going to do exactly what is needed. In fact, the reason Jesus even uttered all of that out loud in verse 42 is so that He could draw everybody else in who was standing around. Hey, let's all trust God together. Not just me trust God, but everybody else here. Let's all trust the Lord. And that's really something we see Jesus just emphasizing all the time in His preaching and in His teaching. For example, in the parables, Jesus is always illustrating God's trustworthiness. The parable of a shepherd who came searching for one wandering sheep. You trust the shepherd because He's going to come for you. Or the parable of that vineyard owner. Hey, you trust that vineyard owner because when He comes back, He's going to set all things right. He's going to do what's just. He's going to do what's fair. Parable of the prodigal son. You trust that father because he'll give you not only a second chance, he'll give you a 220 second chance because he wants you to come home. Jesus is always talking about trusting in the father. In Matthew 24, I think of the statement Jesus made there when he said, I don't even know the day nor the hour, but the father knows. And you know what? I'm good with that. I don't even need to know all that stuff. I trust Him. That's fine by me. He'll take care of that. Or what about in Luke 24? Would you find Luke 24? In Luke 24, these are some of the last words that Jesus ever spoke to His apostles before they before He ascended back into heaven. And so He says to them in Luke 24, in verse 49, He says to them, Behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. Think about that. Jesus said, I know that God's Word, He's good for it. That God's going to do exactly what He's supposed to do. He's given His Word. He's made His promise. And so I'm now conferring that onto you. And I'm encouraging you to believe and to trust His Word. In fact, wouldn't that explain why Jesus encouraged His disciples when He was modeling prayer for them in Matthew the 6th chapter? Jesus said, pray then like this, Matthew 6 and 9. Our... Father in heaven. He's not just my Father. He is our Father. And you can entreat Him as a Father. He can be counted on. And I want you to trust Him just like I do. And what I want you to know this morning is that Jesus didn't just talk about that. He didn't talk up a real big game about trusting in the Father. Tell everybody, hey, you ought to trust God. But then when the chips were down, well, Jesus folded His cards. No, 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 no. Look in Luke 22. In Luke chapter 22... This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He is in great agony and in great distress. And it is there in that moment that He prays in verse 42. Luke 22, verse 42. He said, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. Right here in the very darkest hour, as the cross is looming large in the distance. Jesus looked above and He cried to the Father and He said, Father, must I? 
Father, do I have to do this? And the father clearly must have responded and said, Yes. This is the only way that sinful men and sinful women can be redeemed. You trust me that this must be done. What does Jesus do next? He trusts. He trusts His Father. He trusts God with His very life and even more. Jesus put everything on the line, all of it, as He dies for the sins of the whole world. Now I'm going to say to you this morning, if Jesus could trust God to see Him through that, what can't we trust God to get us through? In fact, what was one of the last statements that Jesus made while He was hanging on the cross? Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. To the very end, Jesus trusted God. And by His constant example, He is helping us, I believe, to do the very same. Jesus understood that relationships are built they're built on trust. You, you, you need trust in a, in a friendship. You need trust, of course, in a good marriage. That's essential. And I'm saying to you this morning that trust is absolutely necessary in a relationship with God. Trust is the glue that just holds it all together. And the more glue you put on that relationship, the stronger it's going to be. And the reason that that relationship with the Lord needs to be just as strong and as tight as it possibly can be is because at some point along the way, you're going to experience difficulty. You're going to experience trials. You're going to experience hardship. Somewhere along life's journey, you're going to have to go through a rough patch or maybe several rough patches. And in that moment, you're going to look above. And you're going to cry out like Jesus did in the garden, God... Have you got me here? God, am I going to be okay? And what Jesus, your elder brother, wants you to remember is yes, absolutely God has got you. He has you in the palm of His hand. You can trust your Father. Jesus wants you to know, I trusted Him. You can count on Him in the same way. You spend time with Jesus. Jesus is going to show you sooner or later. He's going to show you that God can be trusted. And He needs to be trusted to the very ends of the world and beyond. You know, if you have a friend who does know somebody that's really, really famous, and you go to him and you ask, hey, what's he like? After hearing what that person is like and thinking about it for a while, get the whole scoop on that individual, you may eventually then ask this question, well, would you, uh, would you introduce me to him? It'd just be so cool. Could you introduce me to that person? And if you go and you ask Jesus that question about God, you ask, hey, would you introduce me to your father? You know what Jesus is going to say? He's going to say, absolutely I will. I would love to introduce you to the Father. In John the 14th chapter, one final passage, and this series will be yours. I'll put it up on the screen. In John 14, as Jesus is trying to reassure His disciples, and specifically Thomas is the one who expresses some uncertainty, and in fact he essentially asks Jesus, will you introduce us? Jesus responds in John 14, verses 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you really know Me, you will know My Father as well. And from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And as such, as He points out here, He is the only means by which we have access to the Father. You want to be introduced to God? you got to go through Jesus. You want to be in a relationship with God? you got to go through Jesus. Jesus will show you just how much the Father loves you. He will show you just how much you need to trust the Father. That's what Jesus came here to do. And so, the Father, He invites you to come to Him. And He invites you to come to Him through His Son. And it is an invitation not to become religious. It's not an invitation for you to join an institution. No, it is an invitation to be in covenant relationship with Him. That relationship is predicated on faith and on trust. And it is then forged in the waters of baptism where God will wash away every sin, Acts 22.16, where you will then be united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. And you will then be added to the very family of God, Acts 2, verse 41. Can we help somebody this morning to take that critical step? It may be that you, you do believe in the Lord. You've got some trust working in you. Let's let that trust move you to action right now. If you are a Christian, but maybe your trust in God has wavered, it's diminished in some way, and you've not been a devoted son or a devoted daughter as you ought to be. And this is your invitation as well. It's an invitation to repent, to come back to the Father, start living for Him in a better way. We can assist anybody this morning in knowing God through Jesus His Son. And we implore you through the words of this song, make your wishes known right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.